two weeks ago when John Serena, he was the person who firebombed our building here, was arrested. I told the reporters that there was forgiveness in this world through Jesus Christ. And they all looked at me like I was some weird alien, basically. Like, what? No, you can't. You're supposed to have condemnation in your heart. You're supposed to want him to burn at the stake. You're supposed to have hatred for people who do things like this. But there is forgiveness, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And that can be true for John, and it can be true of you. So I want you to keep that in mind and keep this video in mind. How someone could do such a horrible act. And how the family members could surround this person and express their forgiveness of this person over them. Keep that in mind as we continue through First John this morning. And so I encourage you to join me in First John. If you brought your scriptures with you this morning, or if you have a phone, an app, or a tablet with you, you can turn there as well, First John. You might remember, for those of you who were with us last week, that life had appeared. And not just any life, not the breathing kind of life, but the life that we are always intended to live. The life of God. The life full of meaning and purpose and love and beauty and truth. The life that we all long for deep down inside. That very life appeared. It took on flesh. And John says that we are drawn up into this life. That we can receive this life. That's an exciting way to start a letter, don't you think? It's kind of the longing of of all of our hearts and souls has been satisfied in this person, and now we can be drawn up into it. That's an exciting way to start a letter. But you might also remember that John is writing, in part, to combat a particular philosophy that was arising in his day. Gnostics had risen up, and they were trying to convince the church to be drawn into a heretical way of thinking. They they believed that the real evil in the world was matter, the, the material, the physical bodies that we lived in. And they also believed that they were the ones who had gained the secret knowledge that it took to escape the imprisonment of the body. And so they believed that they had fellowship with God because they were the ones who were truly saved. They were the ones who had escaped the body. And they had attained then a spiritual perfection. They were above then the possibility of sinning. Now this is a problem that John feels he needs to address. And so he begins his letter in chapter 1 verse 5 saying this. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Father, what a beautiful message. That we have an atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only ours, but the sins of everybody. That you loved us enough, Father, to pay the price that we could not pay. That you made a, an atonement, Father. You, you made it so that we could be one with you again, Father. And you did that through the shed blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would give us insight into your word this morning. 
and you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would open our minds and open our hearts to receive you this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So, how many of you are afraid of the dark? You see, that's wrong. None of you are actually afraid of the dark. You can't, you can't be afraid of the dark because darkness isn't actually anything. Darkness isn't a force. It's merely the absence of light. And so, sir, you can be afraid of what happens in the dark. You can be afraid of, of what people might do to you in the dark. But you can't actually be afraid of the dark because the dark isn't anything. It's the absence of light. And so God is light, John says, and in him there isn't even a hint of darkness. John doesn't mean that God is actual light. It's, he, he's not the UV rays that radiate from the sun or from the bulbs overhead. He means that God is good and pure and right. He is the righteous one. He is life as it was intended to be. It was once the case that all the world was covered in God's light. All of the world functioned as it was supposed to be. Everything functioned the way that God had designed it and intended it to function. But there came a day in human history when man, humanity, rejected and rebelled against God. And then sin separated us from his presence, and it separated from his light, and allowed darkness to flourish. Because remember, darkness is just the absence of light. And so when we separated from God, darkness covered the world as God and his light became absent and so in John's thought, walking in the light is living under the authority of God. It's living with all of our fiber to learn to love him with all of our being and apply that love to not only one another, but also to ourselves. That's what walking in the light is. That's what walking as we were intended to be is. But walking in darkness is living in absence of love for God. It's living in absence of love for one another. It's living in absence for the love of the self. And so let me ask you, where in your light where in your life is the light of God absent? Where do you fail to love? Where is love absent from not only your expression of how you exist as a human person before a holy God, but also in your interactions with other people? When are you more self-serving than serving? When are you more self-pitying than compassionate? Where do you walk in the darkness? Because John lays down a very hard truth he says, if we claim to have fellowship with one another and yet walk in darkness, we're liars. We're liars. We lie and do not live out of the truth. And so here's the thing about darkness. Darkness conceals, right? No one has to know what really happens in my head. No one has to know what my hands really do. Everything can lay hidden because there is no light to expose me. I'm in the dark. No one has to know who I really am. No one has to know what I do. I'm in the dark. <laughs> Some people are afraid of the dark, evidently. <laughs> so Ted Bundy. You might know that name, Ted Bundy. He was a serial killer who murdered upwards to 50 women in the 1970s. He grew up in a loving Christian home. Not many people probably know that. He was surrounded by people who cared for him and were concerned for him and for his well-being. He had shelter and food on his table. He didn't do drugs or commit 
crimes early in his life. He was, for the most part, a normal child growing up in middle-class America. But there was a secret that Ted Bundy kept hidden. There was a secret that he kept concealed and hidden in the dark. He had an obsession and addiction that he feared would be exposed, and so he kept it hidden. At the young age of five or six, he already had an addiction to pornography. And though to the outside world looking in, he looked like a perfectly successful young man with hopeful ambitions of law and politics, inside him was a man trapped to his addiction, and in the darkness where he concealed it, this addiction grew into a monster, and it began to devour him and eat away his soul. So James Dobson, who is a Christian psychologist, he interviewed Ted Bundy the day before he was put to death by electrocution. James said regarding Ted's pornographic addiction, You had gone about as far as you could go in your own fantasy life with uh, printed materials, photos, videos, etc. And then there were the urge to take that step over into the physical event. Ted responds, you know, once you become an addicted to it and look at this as a kind of addiction, you look for more potent, more explicit, more graphic kinds of material. Uh, Like an addiction, you keep craving something which is harder and gives you a greater sense of excitement uh, until you reach the point where the pornography only goes so far. That jumping off point where you begin to think maybe actually doing it will give you that which is just beyond reading about it and looking at it. James says, well, how long did you stay at that point before you actually assaulted someone? A couple of years, Ted says. I I was dealing with very strong inhibitions against criminal and violent behavior that had been conditioned and and bred into me from my neighborhood and my environment, my church and my schools. I knew it was wrong to think about it and, and certainly to do it was wrong. I was on the edge, and the last vestiges of restraint were being tested constantly and assailed through the kind of fantasy life that was fueled largely by pornography. James says, well, do you remember what pushed you over that edge? Do you remember the decision to go for it? Do you remember what you decided to throw caution to the wind? Ted responds, it's a very difficult thing to describe, the sensation of reaching that point where I knew I couldn't control it anymore. The barriers I had learned as a child were not enough to hold me back from seeking out and harming somebody. James responds, would it be accurate to call that a sexual frenzy? Ted says, that's one way to describe it, a compulsion, a building up of the destructive energy. Another fact I I haven't mentioned is the use of alcohol. In conjunction with my exposure to pornography, alcohol reduced my inhibitions and pornography eroded them further. Now, what would have happened... If Ted Bundy, maybe as a teenager, as, as a young man, would have come forward and, and said, I have a problem. I, I have a real problem, and I can't control it, and I need it to be exposed. Granted, I, m- I might be very fearful. I might be very fearful of what this exposure is going to do to me. I might be very fearful of people knowing exactly what's going on in my head and in my heart. Exposure is very scary. But what would happen if Ted Bundy, as as a teenager, when he's dealing with these strong desires, would have come along and said, I'm not going to let this sin control me any longer. I will not let this sin remain in darkness, allowing it to feed on my soul and grow as it devours me. I'm going to walk into the light. 
What would have happened if Ted Bundy would have made that decision one day as a teenager to walk into the light and let his sin be exposed before the world? Now, as scary and as shaming as it is, right? Because you all know now what my problems are. You all know that I'm broken and messed up inside. You you all know that that I have these, these, these tendencies and these obsessions and these addictions. And that's so shaming and it's so hurtful to even think about, right? The light is frightening. Because what if you were to find out who I really am? What if you were to find out what I really think inside my head? What if you were to find out what I really do in secret? I would probably lose my job. I would, my wife would certainly abandon me. My, my children would think I'm just a horrible father for doing all these horrible things. The world around me would just shame me and point their finger at me and condemn me. I cannot live like that. And so what? I'm going to stay in the dark. But you know what? If, if you were to really ask me what I think, I, I kind of actually love my, my porn addiction. I don't really want to step into the light because I kind of love the behavior that I'm, I'm dealing with. That this is who I know who I am. This is, this is how I go about functioning in life. This is how I go through my day-to-day routine. If I get rid of that, then, then what left is there? I, I kind of love this part of me. You know, Jesus said that light has come into the world, but men loved darkness. And because I love the darkness, because I'm afraid to be exposed, and because I'm afraid to be ashamed, that I am going to go back and flee back into the darkness. And I'm going to conceal the sin. And I'm not going to let you know exactly what's going through my heart and what's going through my head because I'm ashamed of it. Here I can wear my mask. Here I can keep pretending that here is where I love to be, even though I know that I am broken inside, even though I know that I am a mess, even though I know that in this darkness I am ruined. Here is where I love to be. But you know that living in darkness is incompatible with the presence of God. It's incompatible with light. It doesn't make any sense to live in the darkness and live in the light. So if you want fellowship with God, you must come into the light And his light will expose your sin. That just comes with the territory of God being light. It comes with the deal. It comes with the package. So you you must let light do its exposing work. See, you cannot have it both ways. You cannot live in the darkness and live in the light. You cannot fellowship with the light and live in the darkness. If you want the life that the light provides you. If you want to be in fellowship with God, if you want to be in the light, then you must come and you must let the light do its exposing work in your life. But here's what's so remarkable about the light and about our God when we enter into the light. See, we have our sin fully intact, right? It's fully exposed to the world. Our sin is fully exposed. It's fully intact. And we walk into the light, and we think, I can't go into the light because God is going to stand above me with a lightning bolt in his hand. If he knows what I'm doing, then he's going to throw that lightning bolt down. He's going to condemn me probably forever. And so I'm going to stay away from the light. But you know what's so beautiful about the light of God? He says in verse 7, if we walk into the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and what? 
The blood of Jesus, his son, what does it do? Purifies us from all sin. As shaming as walking in the light might seem, acknowledging that we are sinful rebels against the holy God is the first step in becoming clean and becoming pure from the sin that entangles and contaminates. And when we stand in the light of God's love and mercy, the blood of Jesus Christ purifies us and cleanses us. And it does away with the sin that's caused so much hurt and so much shame and so much chaos in our life, and it reveals that we are forgiven. It gives us a new identity when we stand in the light. God reveals and he exposes and he burns away all the chaff and all the sin, and we are forgiven. Now, how many of us stay enslaved and entangled to sins because we're afraid of them being exposed? How many of us live in the lie that the, the darkness is okay and the darkness is comfortable because I don't want to go into the light and expose my, sh- my sin because of shame and the guilt that I will accrue there? But that's not how Jesus works. That's not who our God is. Right, Jesus Christ forgives us our sins and he sets us free. And so please get this, my friends. You are set free. Does that need to burrow into anybody's mind and heart this morning a little deeper than it has before? You are set free through the blood of Jesus. You are set free. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? Your past sins have been cleansed, and it doesn't matter how bad you think your past is. If you are in the light, airing out your sins, allowing them to be totally exposed before a God who loves you, you are set free. And so now it's one thing to run from the light because we're afraid of being exposed. It's another to remain outside of the light because we don't think the darkness actually exists. You know, there are all sorts of animal species in the world that have lived their entire lives in caves. A lot of these don't have the ability to see. A lot of them actually don't even have eyes. But God has given them other ways of seeing through antenna or through scales upon their body which can which can interpret even the slightest bit of wind change or current change in the water, and they can actually maneuver through water and through caves that way. But these animals don't know they're in the dark because they've never known any different. And so there's this whole class of humanity that doesn't even think they're in the dark because all they've ever known, and they don't even know that they're in the dark or who they are before a holy God because they've never known anything other this destructive lifestyle that they've lived from day one is the entire life that they've ever known. They don't even know that the light exists. And there's this entire class of humanity that are self-righteous spiritualists that hold on to a holier-than-thou mentality and they think that they've risen above the ability to sin. Everyone else is below them and they've kind of moved beyond it and they're judgmental and they hold this holier-than-thou mentality over everybody else. They're not in the dark. They're fully in the light, not even knowing that really they're still in the darkness. And there's this whole class of humanity that think they're simply good people, and therefore they have nothing that they need to confess. They don't have any sin to bring into the light, and so what's the point of going into the light? And so John says in verse 8, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. 
And at the base of all of these mentalities is this idea that we don't need cleansing. We, we don't need cleansing from sin because we don't have any sin that needs cleansing from. It's like my three-year-old son Luke who, after having just jumped into the pool and rolled around in the grass and the dirt and the mud and the sand and then having eaten a red popsicle that kind of melted all over himself, comes in from the house and says, Dad, I don't, I don't need a shower before I go to bed. I'm, I'm not dirty. And there's a little bit of that in all of us. We like the darkness. We don't want to come into the light. We're not dirty. We don't need cleansing. We're not that bad of people. But it is John's insistence that when people have sinned, that self-justification and making excuses are irrelevant. There's no point in doing it. God is not a liar, right? God knows the truth. Whether we recognize the truth or not, God does. God is not a liar. He knows that we are sinful to the very core of our being, and the sin runs deeper than any of us imagined inside of all of us. It runs to the very corners of every corner of our, of our heart and soul and body. And there is darkness within all of us, deeper than any of us could ever imagine. And if we have not sinned, and if we think that we have not sinned, or we think that our sin is just minimal, and there's really no big deal, it's not that big of a problem, then we also believe, and you need to know this, we also believe that God's grace and His mercy and His forgiveness and His love are just as minimal. And they're just as shallow, and they're just as insignificant. You see how the two compare? We think we're not that bad. We don't need a lot of God's grace. Then God's grace will be very little power in transforming us into new people. It'll have very little effect on us. But if you realize that your sin penetrates the deepest corners of your heart, the deepest corners of your mind, and the deepest corners of your soul, and it taints everything, if you can grasp that and understand how deep the sin goes, and if you can understand that the expanse between us and God is infinitely wide, but God in His great love has crossed that expanse, that infinitely wide expanse, and He has dug into the deepest corners of our heart, and He has reached down in the deepest corners of our mind and of our soul and of our body, and He has purified us, and he has cleansed us, then all of a sudden God's grace becomes incredible. And it becomes huge, and his forgiveness runs deep, and his love is this enormous, gigantic, beautiful thing that we never even realized because we didn't even know we had such a problem. But when we confess our sin and agree with God regarding our own sinful state of pretending it doesn't exist, then God's grace begins to do this incredibly transforming work in our lives. But if all we want to do is turn a blind eye to the reality, then God can do very little with us. And so what's so incredible is that this cleansing work, it does reach us into the deepest caverns of our life. God's grace removes every single residue of sin. It cleans every single dark corner, not just the big ones. Not just the ones that are obvious, not just the ones that we, that we expose to the world. He cleans every sin. He cleans every corner, every tainted region. He cleans and he purifies. God's mercy is that big and his forgiveness does an incredible work. And all of a sudden as we recognize the beauty and the hugeness of God's love and grace and mercy and forgiveness upon us, then all of a sudden we become these new creatures full of joy. And so the question is, how forgiven really are we then? All right, so Ted Bundy created unimaginable horror for so many people. 
Now, there aren't any Ted Bundys among us, right? Nobody in this room has committed 50 murders. And so we certainly think, wow, man, he's a really, really horrible person. I'm not really that bad. Ted Bundy is a really evil, horrible person. He had this mind and this heart that was wretched. He was a horrible, horrible man. And if you read the blogs and biographies about him, you'll quickly realize that most of the world is going to condemn him to hell because there's no way that God's mercy is that big. There's no way God's mercy is big enough to cover Ted Bundy. There's no way that God's mercy is big enough to kill or to, to cover those, those, those kids who go and shoot up nine people in churches and who burn crosses to the ground. You know how many people came to me and said, that dude who ever burned your cross out, he's, he, that's a one-way ticket to hell. Several, several people in our community said that to me. You, you throw a bomb in a church, you're going straight to hell. There's no hope for you. There's no way God's forgiveness is that big. There's no way God's forgiveness reaches that deep. And so, so listen how his interview with James Dobson ends, Ted Bundy's. James says, one of the final murderers you committed was a 12-year-old Kimberly Leach. I think the public outcry was greater there because an innocent child was taken from a playground. What did you feel after that? Were, were they normal emotions after that? And Ted says, I, I can't really talk about that right now. It's too painful. I would like to be able to convey to you what that experience is like, but I won't be able to talk about that. I, I can't begin to understand the pain that the parents of these children and young women that I have harmed feel. I, I can't restore much to them, if anything, and I won't pretend to. I don't even expect them to forgive me. I'm not asking for their forgiveness. That kind of forgiveness is of God. If they have it, they have it. If they don't, well, maybe they'll find it someday. James asked, do you deserve the punishment the state has inflicted upon you? Well, that's a very good question, Ted says. I don't want to die. I, I won't kid you. I deserve a, certainly the most extreme punishment society has. And I think society deserves to be protected from me and from others like me. James responds, there is tremendous cynicism about you on the outside, I, I suppose for good reason. I'm not sure there's anything you could say that people would believe. Yet you told me, and I've heard this through our mutual friend John Tanner as well, that you have accepted the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and are a follower and a believer in him. Do you draw strength from that as you approach these final hours? Ted says, I do. Oh, but there's no way God's forgiveness is that big. The Ted Bundys of the world, they can't be forgiven. There's no way God's forgiveness runs that deep into the human heart. Man, how could it be? Right? There's not enough penitence in the world that for Ted Bundy to be free and to be forgiven. There's not enough prayers that he could utter. There aren't enough confessional booths in the world that Ted Bundy could be forgiven. There's no way God's forgiveness runs that deep. He did way too many horrible, evil things. And I would say that if we rely on our confessional booths and we rely on the prayers that we utter and if we rely on the penitence that we do to forgive us, then you're absolutely right. There aren't enough penitence. There aren't enough confessional booths. There isn't enough prayers that he could say that would ever forgive him. But Ted Bundy is totally forgiven, not because anything he has done, but solely because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. You see, whenever we require our actions to secure our forgiveness, then all of a sudden we have created something other than biblical Christianity. We've created a works-based religion. 
Whenever there's something I must do instead of Christ's already accomplished work for me to do in order to be forgiven, then we are not preaching biblical Christianity. We don't have to keep going before God wondering if his forgiveness still exists. Every time we commit a sin, wondering, man, did that last sin ruin my salvation? Ever, ever, anybody ever had that thought before? Oh man, did that last sin just ruin me forever? Am I now condemned? We don't have to go before God again because it's not our work that saves us. It's Christ's work that saves us. Our forgiveness is not predicated on anything we do, but solely dependent on the finished work Christ has already done. Amen? Amen. You know, when I was in high school, I had recently uh, become a Christian, and it was found out by uh, a girl, one of my friends, and she came to me. She said, you're a Christian? I said, yeah. And uh, she said, so what do you think happens to people who commit suicide? Do they go to hell, or do they go, is there any opportunity for them to go to heaven? And I was like, oh, man. I became a Christian like two weeks ago. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I don't know the answers to these kind of questions yet. So I, I, was, I was thankful that she continued with her train of thought, because... It kind of helped me out a little bit. She said, I don't think that they can. Because killing is a sin, and if that sin is not confessed, if that sin is not brought before a priest, then, then that sin is going to taint them for all of eternity. And so those who commit suicide can't go to heaven. And even as a young Christian, I knew that my forgiveness had nothing to do with what I had done. Either, either on the contrary to the evil or to the good. It had nothing to do with what I had done, but was solely connected to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, one might think for a brief moment that because God's grace is so incredible and his forgiveness runs so deep, his grace is so amazing, then why not just keep sinning? Why not just stay in the darkness? If God's going to welcome me into the light, why not just stay in the darkness? Wouldn't that be a fun way to live your life? And John realized that such an amazing grace would have this effect. Several other biblical writers understood the same thing. In fact, I think John expects it to have this effect. I think, he think, I, I think John believed that the, the true gospel would always have this effect. That if you really focused and thought about deeply and, and, and explored the mystery of God's incredible love and his incredible forgiveness for you, it's always going to have that effect. You're always going to wonder, can I just remain in the darkness and be welcomed back? God's grace is that big. But John addresses it. He says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. When I was a little boy, my, my parents had this plush yellow carpet. It was all the rage back in the day. It was, it was awesome. I was drinking red Kool-Aid, and, uh, and of, of course I spill it all over my mom's carpet, my parents' carpet. It reads, leaves this huge, giant red spot in, in the middle. Orange, probably, actually. And so what happens? Fear, fear grips me, right? And I'm embarrassed by what I had done and the mistake that I had made, and I'm ashamed to even approach my mom and tell her what I had done. I wanted to run, and I wanted to hide. But my mother was there, and with her immense grace, she simply wraps her arm around me, and she says, it's all right, Ross, it's okay. She went, and she got her borax. <laughs> borax, man, she loves her borax, my mom. It created this magical concoction and it cleaned the mess up. Couldn't even tell there was a, a Kool-Aid spill there. 
It was as good as new. Now, it could have crossed my mind as a young boy to say, my mom has got this magical concoction that cleans up spills. Why don't I just go take the pitcher of Kool-Aid and start throwing it over everything? She can clean it up. That's kind of what using God's grace as a license to sin is like, though. Because there is a solution, why not just keep creating problems? But it doesn't make any sense. It's not bringing you into the light where life is found. I'm going to invite Kate up. We're going to reflect on this for a moment. You know, the Roman church was having the same difficulty that Paul, that John's audience was having. And so Paul writes this to the Romans. He says, Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, and that's like converted to the faith, confessed our sins who have walked into the light, were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a, what does it say? New life. Not a life still trapped in death and darkness. Not a life that is secretly uh, loving the sin that is ruining us and destroying our households. That's not, the God, that's not the life God has intended us to live. He has called us into the light to be freed, to no longer be enslaved to the sin that kills and destroys, but to be freed and to be liberated and to be brought into a new life made known through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ lived and died, and he now t- petitions on our behalf so that we no longer have to be enslaved to the darkness. We don't have to be enslaved to sin and to death. And so why would we go back feeding on the rotten, molded food of the darkness when God has put before us a beautiful, elegant feast? So no, I won't go throwing Kool-Aid on everything. But this doesn't mean that there's not going to come a day when I accidentally spill the Kool-Aid again. I'm not a perfect being. I'm a work in progress. I've still got slippery hands. And in those cases, when we sin, John tells us that Jesus stands up on our behalf. Jesus stands up already having secured our forgiveness, and he advocates to the Father on our behalf. You see, we're not innocent. We're forgiven. And if we're ever found in sin, then we have an advocate for the Father. And God has pardoned us through his son's shed blood. And so I don't know where you guys are at this morning. I don't know if you even know Jesus Christ, but I guarantee you that you've all felt guilty before. I guarantee you that you've all felt shame for something that you have done. And here's your opportunity to be free and to be liberated. Walk into the light. It's going to be shameful at first. I get that. It's going to be hard, and you're not going to feel good being exposed to the world. I get that. You're not going to feel good as you approach the God who is pure love and say, God, I've abandoned you. I've rebelled against you. I've rejected you. Hear all the ways, Father, that there is darkness in my life. I get that it's not going to be easy and that the light is going to expose you to the truth. But the truth is not that you are condemned. The truth is that you are forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And all you need to do is say, God, thank you. 
this incredible gift that you have given me. It does not require anything for me to do, to work towards. There's no way I can earn this. I just receive. That's incredible. That's amazing grace. But it's true. And so if you need that this morning, or if you are a follower of Christ and there is a sin to be found on your hands, if you're throwing Kool-Aid all around, then walk into the light. Get closer into the center of the light and let it be exposed and let the light burn it away so that you might live the life God is calling you to live. Do not live in sin. Do not live in darkness. That is no way to be human. Father, we need you this morning. We need you, Father, to, to continue to shine the light in our dark corners where, where we, we kind of like that there's some darkness in us a little bit. But we know, Father, that the darkness is where ruin exists. We're brokenness, Father, and we, we live in, enslaved to shame and to guilt, Father, and there is no freedom in the darkness. And so, Father, let us continue to walk closer into your light. And, Father, for all of those who may not even know you this morning, we pray for them, Father, that, that you would shine the light into their life so that the sin in their life might re- be revealed. And that they would acknowledge it, Father, and they would step into the light saying, Father, I need you. Yes, expose me, Father. That's fine. I can deal with the shame. I can deal with the guilt because you're going to wash them clean, Father, with the shed blood of your son, Jesus. You have forgiven me. There is no condemnation in you, Father. So do your good work in me. Change me into the person you've created me to be. I so desperately want a household that is full of peace. I so desperately want a a workplace that is full of love. I so desperately want a, a, a soul and a heart that is content with who I am, Father, and who you have created me to be. So do your work, Father. I pray that you would do your work in me this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.